Hello, I'm Michael Hainsworth. What are the economic consequences of Russia's war in Ukraine? And as we turn our attention to energy security as a result, is there a solution for Canada and climate change? These questions are explored in depth at the Institute by Dan Kuriak, a fellow in residence at the C.D. Howe Institute, and by Monica Gattinger, the founding chair of Positive Energy at the University of Ottawa and the director of U Ottawa's Institute for Science, Society, and Policy. As a new iron curtain falls between Russia and the rest of Europe, Dan, Monica, and I sat down to discuss the impact long-term and short. We began by discussing the short-term cost of the invasion. Well, it's in the trillions of dollars. Uh, I did a quick back-of-the-envelope calculation that tried to collate the um, costs to uh, Ukraine of destruction of property, uh, the cost to uh, GDP growth in, um, in Russia and Ukraine uh, as a result of the likely massive recessions in those two economies caused by the war, the likely cost of recession globally, just even a, a, a lowball estimate, um, and the cost of destruction of intangible assets, which is huge. And I came up, came up with a figure of two trillion just with that alone. Um, then the, there's the cost of in the human cost, which is, of course, it's, it's not really properly. Uh, you, you, you can't put a dollar figure on that properly. But governments do put a value on a statistical life. And if you do even a back of the envelope calculation on, on the cost there, we're again talking a multiple of the, of the $2 trillion cost in economic terms. So it's huge. And that's just the short run. As well, this has renewed our concern about energy security, Monica. It, it sure has. Um, I mean, Michael, I've been beating the drum about energy security for years now. And, you know, the need for reliable and affordable energy that's available uh, when we require it. And I think, you know, it's a testament to our energy systems that whether it's oil, gas, or flipping on the light switch, that uh, energy is there, it's affordable, it's reliable. Uh, the war in Ukraine has really, put a, a, a devastating spotlight uh, on the importance of energy security and, you know, what happens when we don't have secure energy. And, of course, the costs are not only to, to Europe, but also here in North America. We're seeing and we've seen very rapidly uh, the impacts on prices for oil and, uh, and for gas. And that all ties into the global security that we're talking about when we speak about the economics of this. Absolutely. And I think, you know, again, this is one of the areas where certainly for Canada, I find it often a bit surprising that we don't spend more of our focus and attention on questions of energy security, considering that we do uh, play a role uh, in the global energy system in terms of energy security. Uh, and, you know, again, I think that is a testament to the fact that our energy systems have tended to, to do a great job of providing energy when we need it at an affordable uh, price and reliably. Uh, but from a global perspective, you know, these, these questions are huge. And I think what, what's most interesting to me about the current moment is the way in which they're interfacing and interacting with concerns over climate and emissions reductions. So, Dan, as you point out in your report, international economic relations are heavily influenced by security relationships. What does the lowering of this new Iron Curtain mean economically? From the initial um, reactions of the companies that are doing business in Russia, uh, the reaction is, is very, very large and uh, devastating, actually, for uh, the relationships within Europe. 
Um, many global companies have pulled out of Russia, but the one that really caught, caught my attention was Myersk. Myersk is one of the biggest shipping companies in the world. Not only are they a, a major player, but they see what all their clients are doing, what all their customers are doing. And so when Myers not just suspended operations, but they actually sold off all their uh, assets in Russia and pulled all of their containers out, that's telling you about a devastating reduction of trade across the border between Europe and Russia. Now you look at the other side of the, of the world and you look at the uh, China's Belt and Road Initiative. Uh, that was predicated, the, the, the cross-Eurasian uh, railroad from, uh, from Xinjiang over to Europe, that was predicated on a, a very steep growth in trade between Europe and uh, China over land. That now ends in Russia. And there's no market. The Chinese exports to uh, Russia tanked by 7% in March. Okay, so what you're seeing is a, a, a major collapse in, in trade across Eurasia. The World Trade Organization just put out its own estimate of, of the long run costs to the global economy, and their figure is $5 trillion. It's huge. Uh, just from the reduction in, in, in trade that's going to happen both across the security divides, the increased cost of, uh, of, of production globally, uh, if we think about Brexit, Brexit and, and, and the impact it had on, on the UK economy, well, this is a multiple of that in many ways. Is globalism over? I would say no. Uh, we will see a, a, a restructuring of, of globalization. Um, you know, China is still, has still got a lot of wiggle room. Uh, Putin has rolled the dice with a very reckless uh, uh, policy and uh, Russia can't back out of that right now economically, but China still has got a lot of wiggle room to, uh, to redress things. And China's a much bigger player in the global economy. Uh, so the question of, of how they play their cards will be uh, very important for the, the, how global value chains continue. Um, but even if there is, and, and there will be a reduction in, um, in investment in China because China country risk has soared. Um, if you think about, for example, in, in, uh, in the West, Sweden and Finland moved to join NATO. In the East, Korea moved to join the Quad. So that's telling you that the security divide there is also uh, risen, and that's telling you the country risk across that security divide has risen. So we will see more decoupling than we would have seen otherwise. Um, but that will still not end, for example, the transatlantic, it will still not end uh, the, uh, the, uh, you know, the, the, the leakages to Southeast Asia, uh, that will still not end, the, for example, there's increased interest in uh, trade with India and so forth. Globalization will continue because the economics are still there for it. Are the economics still there for it on the energy front? Monica, the expectation is that Europe will need to lessen its dependence on Russian oil and gas. How do we accomplish that? if 40% of Europe's nat gas supply comes from Russia? 
It's a big project to be sure. I mean, if you look at Europe, uh, the European Union's Repower EU plan, which uh, came out shortly after uh, the invasion, this was a plan uh, to reduce dependence on Russian gas uh, by 2030. Uh, European Union has since doubled down on that to uh, aim for 2027 uh, instead of 2030, and plans will be forthcoming on that timeline for oil uh, in the next uh, in the next number of weeks. And really, you know, there's sort of a two-pronged strategy there that Europe's going to be taking. On the one hand, um, sourcing gas uh, from other suppliers, so whether that's uh, within Europe uh, or beyond, and whether that's LNG or increasing um, production of biomethane, uh, you know, renewable gas and, and the like. Um, but it's also about uh, reducing dependence on natural gas as a fuel source, right? And so that's where things like electrification come in. Uh, that's where fuel switching uh, comes in. That's where, um, you know, increasing demand in and of itself comes in. So, you know, literally asking people to turn down their thermostats uh, and to increase the, the efficiency uh, of, uh, you know, of, of buildings uh, and, and the like. But, you know, again, I would, I would underscore that this is a huge project. Energy systems, and it goes back to some of the points Dan was making around, um, you know, we've got well-established supply chains and infrastructure to support those supply chains. Turning those ships around, in sometimes literal terms, in the energy space, uh, it takes time. Uh, so there, yes, there are some things that can be done on a dime, like turning down your thermostat. Other things, even, even seemingly simple things, like, well, let's get a lot of heat pumps uh, out there to replace gas boilers. Well, that presumes that the, you know, the equipment uh, is available, presumes that labor, uh, the labor force is available to install those, presumes that, uh, you know, if you're, uh, um, you know, a household, uh, many of whom, as we know, are struggling with higher uh, costs across a whole host of, uh, uh, of areas, maybe a home renovation isn't exactly the first thing on your mind uh, in that context. So there's a lot of assumptions, I think, that underpin those plans, and we'll see over time how successful and how rapid uh, Europe is actually able to reduce its reliance on Russia oil and gas. But from chaos, is there not opportunity as well? I can imagine that from the perspective of climate change and the necessary things we need to do to wean ourselves off carbon-based fuels, uh, this is an opportunity to accelerate that as well. Uh, agreed. And I think, you know, this is where the renewed focus on energy security is interfacing with concerns over climate in ways that, that I find as a, you know, as an observer, very interesting and, and in some ways troubling. So, you know, on the one hand, you've got folks saying, well, look, you know, we, we've been talking about energy security for, for ages. This just underscores the importance of secure oil and gas uh, supplies. And so we need to look uh, for your, for uh, other suppliers for European markets. Uh, but then on the other hand, to your point, Michael, we've got other folks saying, you know, look, this just underscores that we shouldn't be relying on these sources of energy in the first place. And we should be, uh, because of concerns over climate, we should be reducing our reliance on fossil fuels writ, writ large and making, you know, in essence, sort of a, a wholesale pivot away from uh, from gas. And I think the reality, of course, is somewhere in between. Um, you know, you, you cannot turn around energy markets on a 
dime. If you look at, uh, you know, the world over, um, primary energy demand is about 80% fossil fuels. So turning that around is going to take some time. Uh, it's going to take some time to get the investment that's needed for that, to build the infrastructure that's needed for that, to reform our supply chains and energy systems and, and, and markets. So yes, there is absolutely opportunity. But I think where, where I get concerned is when, um, you know, this is, is, is framed in a way that um, suggests we can make a pivot away from fossil fuels more rapidly than is actually practical. Uh, and, uh, you know, and that, frankly, in some instances, flies in the face of what we are hearing from um, entities like the Interna Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change or the International Energy Agency. Um, you know, and certainly the IEA, if you look at their net zero by 2050 roadmap for the global energy sector, there will still, according to that scenario, be oil and gas and global energy systems even in 2050 to the tune of about 25 million barrels of oil uh, a day uh, to the tune of close to 2 trillion um, cubic meters of, uh, of natural gas. So those are, you know, those are big reductions to be sure. But uh, I think it, it underscores that these energy sources are going to continue to be part uh, of the system. They're going to be a much smaller part of the system. And then it's how do we put in place a transition to reduce you know, our, our uh, dependence on, on carbon intensive energy sources in a way that's going to be orderly and secure the investment capital needed. Canada is an energy source, though. There doesn't seem to be a consensus, though, on what our role ought to be in lessening European dependence on Russian energy. Oh, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, when, you know, when, when all of this first broke as somebody who's a Canada watcher, my first, you know, question, and, and we've seen how things have begun to evolve, was would this actually unite or divide the country uh, around its energy and climate future? And I think, you know, the, the very debate that I mentioned a moment ago around is this the moment to pivot away or is this the moment for Canada to contribute uh, to, uh, to global energy security in terms of its oil and gas supplies? That's precisely what we've seen. Uh, what we've seen play out in the Canadian context, and we don't necessarily have a, you know, have a consensus on that. I think even, you know, in the very early days, it wasn't even clear to me, and to I think a number of others, where where the federal government uh, stood on this. That became a little bit clarified uh, over time, but you know, unfortunately, we've tended to have relatively superficial uh, debates over energy and, and climate in Canada, and we haven't tended to have many debates that really align uh, and into integrate, uh, take that integrated approach with energy and climate. To your point earlier, Michael, that, you know, this is perhaps an opportunity to strengthen energy security and lower uh, emissions reductions. And how do we um, do so in a way that's aligning both of those imperatives? As for the rest of the world, Dan, you write that the international institutions created during America's rise to rule the world with the U.S. dollar need to be reformed. They need to be repurposed or replaced because they don't fit the technological conditions of the 21st century economy. What do you mean by that? So let's start out with just with what's happened um, with the war itself. Um, the UN for a Security Council was hamstrung. So now they're talking about having an automatic meeting of the General Assembly following a veto in the Security Council because the system as structured is not working. So there's an example. The WTO itself, we've um, had numerous countries move to suspend uh, Russia's uh, participation in the WTO, the M most favored nation access. Canada has suspended it, which means an automatic 35% tariff applies to all imports from Russia. It's obviously probably not 
much of, of, of an impact on Russia, but that itself is, is not part of the WTO rulebook. Uh, so we're moving outside of, of the rules-based framework that was set up. Um, we don't have an appellate body. So anyone, anyone can take a measure now and, uh, and, and you can appeal it, but you appeal into the void. So the system's not working there either. Um, meanwhile, you've got, um, uh, um, as the economy and, and, and social interaction and political uh, uh, interaction moves online, what we're seeing is a massive amount of, of disinformation, bot-driven interference uh, in the domestic uh, system. So um, when Facebook Russia shut down, we saw this enormous drop-off in attacks on Prime Minister Trudeau. Ha! Uh, so now we know. I mean, we had suspected that, that, that this was going on, but, but now we actually have metrics on this. We do know that, you know, uh, uh, Putin had invested very heavily in buying London grad, as, as uh, it's been uh, discussed in the British media. We do know there was this incredibly strange relationship with Trump and the GOP. There's a lot of investment there. We saw Maria Butina with her NRA uh, uh, activities, and now she's a member of Russian parliament and, is, and a big Z fan. Um, so, you know, the, the question that we have now for us ourselves in, um, in Canada and, and, and other democracies is, can the social media frameworks which enabled this divis uh, the sowing of division and, and buying of influence in the West, which, pre which uh, basically it teed up the, um, the, the war in your, the assault on Ukraine, can this be allowed to continue? How do we actually intervene? You know, what are going to be the rules going forward uh, for social interaction on, on social media? I don't think that we can allow this bot-driven, uh, you know, a disinformation and, and divisiveness to continue. We saw it, for example, it, the anti-vaxxer movement, the trucker movement, the trucker convoy. It, it has infiltrated our society and it's damaging. And so that's, that's the technological, uh, technological conditions that we have to deal with. And, and we are moving our economy online without referendum, without rules, without, without guardrails. Uh, so that's why I'm saying that we need to, to, to reframe the, 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 the systems that we have in place, the global institutions to handle this. Do we have to do the same, Monica, for Canada's institutions as a Canada watcher, as you describe yourself, do we need to be making changes here to accommodate for such things as social media propaganda? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, we've done some work in, in this space uh, in terms of um, trying to get a, a better handle on just how polarized and divided are Canadians around issues of energy and climate. Um, you know, and there's no question that, that uh, you know, if, if, if you're on Twitter, what you see, I think, is a lot more divided and divisive than what one sees if you do public opinion survey research. So we've undertaken a good deal uh, of survey research with our polling uh 
partner Nanos. And, uh, you know, a lot of that work really underscores that Canadians are not as polarized on these issues as uh, as one might think. Uh, and in many instances, yes, they disagree, but they don't, you know, their, their positions aren't sort of crystallized into those hardened polarized views at, at either end of the spectrum. So I think, you know, for Canada, one of the, the really important uh, things for us to be thinking about um, is where, where do our oil and gas resources sit uh, in the country's energy and climate future, both domestically and internationally. Uh, and, you know, if you look at, for example, uh, in the natural gas sector, something that is relatively, um, you know, not, not relatively well known is that we are able as this country to produce some of the lowest emitting, least carbon intensive LNG in the world. And are we having a debate and a discussion around, you know, whether or not we should be supporting um, the, uh, um, you know, the export Export, uh, of our natural gas resources if those are actually able to displace higher emitting energy sources elsewhere and are able to compete effectively uh, against uh, you know against other uh, uh, other LNG producers and I think the same thing goes on the oil uh, side as well we're not necessarily having that conversation that sort of integrates the energy and climate uh, energy and climate perspectives. Right. There's an element of this of perhaps we can't ship our energy directly to Ukraine and the rest of Europe, but we would be able to help offset the supply crunch that they're suffering by getting the necessary energy to other parts of the world where we can get it. Absolutely. And that's, you know, and again, it's it's not not exclusively thinking about markets beyond North America. It's also markets here in North America. I mean, I just actually recently published a paper with the University of Michigan's Ford School of Public Policy on energy security and the road to, to net zero. And the whole topic of energy security has completely fallen off of Canada-US, uh, the Canada-US agenda over the last 20 years as a result of, you know, the shale revolution and to some extent the, the ascendance of climate uh, as well. On, on political and policy agendas. And yet there's a lot of work I think that Canada and the United States could do together to strengthen North American continental energy security in ways that would also help to strengthen global uh, security. So as we bring this full circle back to the Russian invasion of Ukraine, Dan, if we're expecting Ukraine's GDP to fall 35% and Russia's to fall 40%, Considering Ukraine is the breadbasket of Europe, we're dealing with energy and food price inflation, uh, we're seeing a pullback in economic activity and investment. What are the implications for Canada? So let's just start with the kind of the, the economic impacts within you know the Russia-Ukraine space. Um, in terms of the, the GDP, the figure for Ukraine now is, is, has risen from minus 35 to minus 55 and possibly even more. Uh, plus, there is now talk of the grain harvest itself actually failing. Uh, on top of that, you, the Black Sea ports where most of the grain ships through are mined and blocked. Uh, the Russian economy itself is facing a recession on the order of you know somewhere between 11 and 15 percent in, in real GDP terms in their own currency. But the value of the ruble structurally in real terms has fallen because the, the, of the destruction of Russia's intangible assets. I'll give you an example of this. Um, just before the war broke out, Daniil Medvedev, uh, the tennis star, made world number one. He was looking at you know tens, maybe hundreds of millions worth of, of revenue in endorsements. And now he's a toxic asset. 
I mean, that's a shrivel. That, and this is re replicated throughout the Russian economy. Petersburg and Moscow had budding unicorns. That economy has now just shriveled. So the value of the ruble in structural terms has also fallen. I put a, you know, a notional figure of 25% of that. So you get 15 and, and 25, you get 40%. But the Russian economy going forward is going to be a much smaller economy than it would otherwise have been. Meanwhile, you've got this, the disruption of, of trade and grain in particular. So this is huge for North Africa and for other parts of the world that depend on Russian and Ukrainian grain. So, uh, and that's, that could be quite devastating. Uh, you've got now for Canada, I mean, we might, uh, we feel some uh, support for our, our, uh, our commodity exports, uh, but, which is good for our balance of payments for our, our current account surplus, but it also means higher prices. And those higher prices uh, translate into inflationary impulses, which translate into higher interest rates, which translate into lower growth. The world is in fact facing a possible recession. The United States uh, inflation rate in March bumped up to 8.5% on a year over year basis. We haven't seen that since 1981. The Bank of Canada just raised interest rates. The Fed is raising interest rates. The last time we were in this kind of a circumstance, the, the rise in, in interest rates globally triggered all kinds of defaults. We had, um, and, and, and we're seeing that right now. Uh, Sri Lanka and Pakistan have defaulted on their debt. Uh, in the 1980s, we had the Latin debt crisis and we had uh, the, the, the African debt crisis, uh, which gave rise to uh, that term, you know, heavily indebted poor countries, HIPPX. Uh, that became a term of art. Uh, we are facing now, again, a potential global ramifications of, of tightening uh, money, uh, tightening uh, borrowing costs. Countries that have borrowed in U.S. dollars will now have to pay more to repay them in a, in a global economy that's slowing. So, yes, Canada does, again, as, as in the energy sector, does stand to benefit in some narrow ways. But more generally, uh, across the economy-wide, we're facing uh, tough times, I think. Monica, uh, from your report, your intelligence memo is written as, The war in Ukraine and global energy security, will it unite or divide Canadians? What's your answer? I would uh, really go in, in a similar direction that, uh, to Dan, um, you know, which is to say that I think affordability is going to become just a huge issue. We already have seen that if you look at the latest federal budget, much greater attention to affordability, whether it's on the housing front or, or elsewhere. Um, we're really going to see this beginning to hit people much more closely. And as somebody who watches energy and climate, um, you know, I, the, the next intelligence memo could be, you know, rising energy prices, will they divide, divide or unite Canadians around climate action? Um, so we'll see how things evolve. But I think it, it really Really comes back to the need uh, for all countries, but uh, including Canada, uh, for those integrated approaches uh, to energy and climate decision making that solve, yes, for emissions reductions, but are also solving for energy imperatives like affordability and reliability. Monica, thank you so much for your time and insight in joining us here today. Thanks for having me. And Dan, great to get your thoughts as well and to hear that you finally got your love of tennis into the conversation. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, and indeed, this afternoon, I'll be out on the courts and uh, it is a great stress reliever, let me tell you. I would say one thing. This is springtime in Ukraine. 
you know, this is the time for patios. Uh, you know, girls should be breaking out their summer dresses and families with toddlers should be going to the park. And many of them are now lying dead or maimed or, you know, uh, in refugee camps with the joy of life sucked out of them. Uh, and this, how do you put a price on that? It is uh, a huge tragedy uh, at, at a human scale. And if you think about not just the people in Ukraine, but you think about you know people worldwide. Elizabeth May was crying in Parliament when she was uh, you know uh, trying to get help for uh, support for Ukraine. This has sucked the joy out of life of a lot of people, and and that's that's just like you know there's no price on that. It is a disaster of, of, uh, of massive proportions. So war is war is horrible, and uh, to an, un, an unforced uh, sort of war of choice is uh, just a, a great tragedy for the whole world. And it's hard to know how one man, one 69-year-old man, uh, could visit so much grief on so many people who are totally unrelated to him. And that, I think, should be said somewhere. Dan Kuriak is a fellow in residence with the C.D. Howe Institute. Monica Gattinger is a founding chair of Positive Energy at the University of Ottawa and director of U Ottawa's Institute for Science, Society, and Policy. Still to come from the C.D. Howe Institute, the weaponization of finance and the future of the international monetary system. A webinar with Barry Eichengreen, the distinguished professor of economics and political science at the University of California at Berkeley. And with William White, a senior fellow at the C.D. Howe Institute and former chair of the Economic and Development Review Committee at the OECD in Paris. That's April 20th. On the 25th, a new energy crisis? The VP of Oil Sands Fiscal and Economic Policy at the Canadian Association of Petroleum Producers, Ben Brunin, will join Nine Point Partners Senior Portfolio Manager, Eric Nuttall, and BMO Financial Group's Chief Economist, Doug Porter. Go to cdhow.org for the details. I'm Michael Hainsworth. Thanks for listening. Stay healthy. Stay safe. You've been listening to the C.D. Howe Institute podcast with Michael Hainsworth. Subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. The C.D. Howe Institute is an independent, not-for-profit research institute whose mission is to raise living standards by fostering economically sound public policies. The Institute is widely considered to be Canada's most influential think tank and a trusted source of essential policy intelligence, distinguished by nonpartisan, evidence-based research and subject to definitive expert review. Visit cdhow.org and follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you.